session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dralakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded then of each week my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Wednesday, Wednesday show, not Wednesday, uh, Monday's a holiday. The book is Between Us by Batia Mesquita. Between Us, How Cultures Create Emotions by Batia Mesquita. All right. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is The Secrets of Words by Noam Chomsky and Andrea Moro. Uh, this is a book that just came out that the the it's really two parts the bigger part at the beginning is a conversation between these two noam chomsky and andrea moro noam chomsky of course came up with some very very impactful monumental theories related to language language acquisition and um, how humans understand language that was in opposition to some of the arguments presented by many linguists of the time including um, the behaviorists especially, which I'll talk a bit about. Andrea Moro also has done research on linguistics, um, and he's a professor uh, at the Advanced Study Institute for Advanced Study in Pavia, Italy. And uh, this book was an interesting conversation between two heavyweights in the field of linguistics. And, um, you know, Chomsky has made many impacts intellectually, but when it comes to language and language acquisition, we can understand some of what he contributed as basically saying that humans have a universal and, in a sense, innate ability to acquire language, that it's as if our brains have some ability component. I don't want to say module, because sometimes we think of the brain in these ways where it's like this part does this where really it seems that it's always going to be much more complicated than that but that essentially to use a machine type of a term we're we're equipped to learn languages it's not just like learning other things as they talk about in the book like learning how to uh, learn the rules of a game it's not the same way that we learn the rules of grammar it seems to be something more innate and universal than that uh, andrea moro has done some interesting research on uh, what he calls impossible languages and he has a book of the same name where he describes his research on these things he calls impossible languages which uh, I'll get into in a moment and so there's this conversation they have about things related to linguistics but also looking at science science the history of science in certain aspects also the optimism we've seen in science in different periods and how it's often a little bit optimistic and thinks that we can solve all the problems or we figured it all out because of some new discovery, some new technology, some new theory. And time and time again, we see that the, the full picture is much more complex. And so we, we seek this capital T truth to know 
what's going on or how to explain something, but we're always going to be left with a, a, a smaller T truth that might get bigger and that we understand more, but it does seem that to expect that we can understand the whole world or even one aspect of the world fully might be a bit naive and short-sighted. So, um, as I mentioned, Noam Chomsky's did a lot of work in many different fields. When it comes to linguistics, he's also a heavyweight in that he contributed significantly in our understanding. And of course, every theory of these sorts has criticisms, and some people agree and some disagree, and some aspects of the theories tend to be proven more right or more wrong over time. Um, but really, his contributions were significant. And so Andrea Moro's work looking at as I mentioned, impossible languages, which I'll explain uh, uh, the best I can right now, seems to support some of Chomsky's um, thoughts that it's the syntax and these rules that we have that are innate for humans that help us understand language, not just some kind of rule acquisition or trial and error learning that the behaviorist thought. So maybe I'll, I'll add that there. For the behaviorists, and B.F. Skinner is known as one of the um, heavyweights in that field and that school of thought, the thinking was that everything we do is just from uh, essentially reinforcements and punishments, where the things that get rewarded or reinforced, we're more likely to do. The things that don't get rewarded or might get punished, we're less likely to do. And that's essentially how any organism, including humans, uh, learn anything to do anything. And so this is where a lot of research was being done on different types of reinforcement and seeing how it could make animals do certain things um, from salivating that was happening automatically to the sound of a bell if it was then uh, presented with um, I think it was meat powder or some kind of food for the dogs this Pavlov's dogs which was a a famous and hallmark study that helped us understand that type of reinforcement that's automatic um, to more uh, systematic ways of getting animals for example to do something so if you see uh, an animal at a, sh a circus doing a trick often it's through these types of reinforcements where they slowly get the animal to do one step then the next and then eventually they can do a whole series definitely not condoning circus animals and the treatment of them uh, but that's one of the things that was being done was getting animals to do certain things so that type of thinking was then thought to be part of every kind of behavior including language and so chomsky was saying no this is not the case that it's not just something that we learn like everything else and really when you look at what babies do and then growing into toddlers it doesn't seem like what they're doing is based on trial and error learning alone it seems like there's something more innate going on and so andrea mora was showing that these um, impossible languages were essentially languages that could make some kind of logical sense let's say for example that when we are understanding a sentence everything that matters is the linear order so this word if it precedes this word means this is related to that in, a, in that kind of an order. And we see that that's not the case. So, for example, if I say that, um, you know, Tom went to the store with Sarah and he da 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 da, you know that the he is talking about Tom and not someone, not about Sarah, even though uh, her name was closer to that word. And so the, the Chomsky was impressed by this, that we in some ways ignore um so much of what we experience when we hear something and we have some rules it seems like that are hierarchical that help us understand rather than by the order alone and so in these impossible languages uh, Moro was having subjects do these types of 
experiments learning these new languages, either languages that exist existed already, like someone who's German learning Japanese, or learning words that don't have meaning. So the semantics don't make sense, but you can understand the sentence. And they found that people do better with the quote-unquote possible languages versus the impossible languages. And they also did brain scans, and they found that when people were learning a new possible language, meaning it's like how they we understand language using syntax, parts of the brain around the Broca's area and related to language were lit up. But when they were learning these more linear types of languages that were the quote-unquote impossible languages, other parts were being lit up in the brain, which essentially was more like the brain was trying to solve a problem rather than just perceive something in a sense. That's how I understood. And so it is a little bit convoluted, and it's not to say that it's convoluted just because it's confusing, because it is also my understanding of it will be limited. I was newly exposed to this idea of these impossible languages, but it gave some more credence to the fact that the way we understand language seems to be more universal than just learning rules. And we see that practically all human languages, I think they say say all, I say it practically in case, you know, I don't know or there is something out there showing otherwise, follow these types of rules, which seems to imply that that's the case. And from my understanding, even things like sign language, which you, is not a written language per se, also follow those. So that to me is quite fascinating to, to see that research and hear their conversation, again, or read their conversation, I should say, um, to see what they were saying about language and what they understood about it. Now, they also, as I mentioned, talk about science and the history of science in different ways. Um, Chomsky talks about in the 50s some insights about linguistics and other fields that made people overly optimistic. Uh, in the sense that they thought that they were going to figure everything out and it was going to be simple going forward. And he said he makes a comparison to what he sees now with uh, things like big data and AI that Thursday saw said, okay, now that we have these means of uh, of learning or of advancing um, our understanding of things, it's going to make it so easy to solve every problem and we're going to know everything soon. And he says he said he sees that same kind of naive optimism in the sense that we think we're going to figure it all out. And I think this is a reminder of having that type of epistemic humility, intellectual humility, that we can't figure all these things out. And even if we think something makes so much sense using a theory we have, it doesn't mean the theory is necessarily right. Things feel right until they're wrong, or things that are right feel the same way as something that's wrong. You can't really tell just because it feels right. Um, and so people have had theories to explain everything. Okay, the if we leave meat out and it goes rotten, it seems like maggots just spontaneously generate. And that was a, a concept several hundred years ago, spontaneous generation, not realizing there was something else going on. It wasn't that it was coming to life from the flesh that was rotting, but that either those eggs were there or they were getting placed or fell there or something like that that was bringing the maggots. But it made sense that there was spontaneous generation. And so uh, we see this happening throughout history. Or I was thinking, and they talk about um, gravity. And really for a lot of our intuitive sense of how things work, we tend to not think an object that is far away from another object can influence that object. We would think that, yes, if you're touching or if you're grabbing or moving, you can influence, move the other object, but gravity 
in the way that it works between sphere, like you know, uh, the Earth and the Moon, let's say, they are affecting each other ba- from far away. The Moon is far away, but it's affecting the tides. And so, if someone had told me that, and I had never heard it before, or heard scientists say that that was true, I would think it sounds kind of crazy. What do you mean the Moon is making the waves or changing the way the waves or the tides go and things like that? That doesn't make any sense. The Moon's all the way over here. The oceans are here. It can't be the case or because of um, the moon or the sun, you know, we're changes the way we as the earth move. And not only that, the earth is moving and flying at some speed around the sun, even though it looks like the sun is going up and down every day. And that's why there's been these intuitive theories or theories that seem to make sense, uh, but that were not right because how we perceive things is going to always be very limited. So I found that part of the discussion fascinating as well, hearing them discuss uh, some, you know, of course, as scientists, they themselves are always trying to advance things, but the the humility that we can have of recognizing we're trying to get to our best understanding, but it doesn't mean we, we completely understand anything yet. And always we think, you know, things feel so modern now and we look back like, oh, look at how backwards things were from the ways they thought to the technologies they had and all those things. And of course, because things haven't advanced past today, that's not possible. There's this sense that we've reached some kind of limit or we've reached the pinnacle when, of course, that's not the case. So it could be good to remember those things as well. So it's a pretty interesting book, very short one, a quick read um, about language in some ways, but more than just that from, I got it because I saw Noam Chomsky get a new book. So I was like, I have to get it and uh, checked it out and hope you will too. That was The Secret of Words by Noam Chomsky and Andrea Morrow. Let's go to our first commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book, The Secrets of Words by Noam Chomsky and Andrea Morrow, and they discussed aspects of linguistics and research related to linguistics, but other topics as well. And when I I saw the title of the book, The Secrets of Words, I thought it was going to be even more about words and meanings and things of of that sort specifically. And, um, you know, with, with things like political correctness and pronouns and different things that have become very hot button issues. I thought it might be more in that realm, but it was more generally about language. And as I mentioned, different aspects of science came up um, in their conversation as well. The second part of the book, Andrea Morrow, it was kind of like a recap of their conversation, but also extending it further and going more in depth into his his thoughts on Chomsky's contributions to linguistics and our understandings of it. Um, but, you know, a note on words themselves, and actually something that Andrea Moro says at the end of the book, I've myself said uh, languages evolve, I think. He said, and I think it makes sense, that it's not, uh, there's a difference between saying something evolves and something changes. So he does say languages change, but they don't necessarily evolve because evolved means they're becoming more advanced and, and language are, languages aren't necessarily becoming more advanced, but they do change. So that aspect of it um, is still, uh, I can understand to be true. Uh, I think I can understand this distinction between those two, but languages do change. If you look at something from 200 years ago, you will notice there's some things that will change in the words that are used. The meanings of words can even change slightly and evolve 
over time. Um, there are some things, of course, in his his research looking at impossible languages, some things that won't change or might change but won't become something totally different, that they have to still follow certain rules that, that are part of this essentially universal grammar, so to speak. Again, I'm not sure if it's of every language, but that practically every language. Um, but that part of words changing or that they can change to me is something interesting and something worth noting because in, in taking a step back, people talk about words and they'll say, well, it's just words. Words don't matter. You can't get upset about words or you can't uh, you know, feel something about words. And, and I completely disagree with that because the whole point of having words is to communicate things, which includes facts and, and ideas in a very abstract way, but also to convey emotion and feelings and every word has feelings embedded in it. And this is why sometimes when you we talk about lost in translation, lots of things can happen. So you might say, let's say a word in uh, Persian and English, and they feel different to you, even though it's the same word for that same uh, whatever, let's say it's even an item or thing or a type of feeling. And so actually the book uh, I'll read this week, looking at culture and feelings, I'm sure we'll get into this even more in depth. But when we look at words, if we just think they just mean something as in like an object, they do, that's part of what they mean, but they always will mean more than that. There are these things that are, are connotations to that word that we connect to it and they really happen automatically. And it could be a lot of things. For you personally, maybe a certain word, you've heard it in Persian, but not English, or in Persian, it was said by someone very loving or important to you or had some meaning. Or when you were a kid, you heard it because you went to school in Iran and now you're in America, so you don't hear that same word. Or if you hear it, it won't bring up those feelings that maybe for someone who grew up in the United States would feel for that same word because they heard it in school, let's say. So uh, individually, words have meanings to us. But then, of course, for it to have any value, a language has to be something collective. I can't just say, well, I'm going to start just on my show saying, and to me, it has a lot of meaning. I could do that. Um, I hope you would stop listening pretty soon. But if I did that, you wouldn't understand what I'm saying, or I wouldn't be able to convey anything to you. The whole point is I have to use words that we have as a shared language that allows for it to have some type of currency, some type of meaning. And this is why I actually think the analogy between um, money and language has some overlap in the sense that both are socially constructed. Language is a social construction that gets created over time. Now, uh, it doesn't mean that, as I was, uh, as was talked about in the book, that um, our brains just learned it as anything else. We do seem to have a certain proclivity to understand language. The way I think about that, actually, I was going to mention this in the first segment, it's kind of like how our eyes see things, right? We perceive things, but we have a special uh, ability or affinity towards faces. And so we notice faces better in more detail. They bring up more feelings for us. There's even, uh, you know, I think it's the fusiform gyrus or fusiform face gyrus, a part of the brain that seems to be associated with face recognition. Even if you look at the outlets in the United States, like the electrical outlets, uh, not talking about shopping, electrical outlets, um, and it's like, you know, two dots and a little circle. And for a lot of people, if you look at that, it kind of looks like a face. I don't know if you've noticed that for a lot of people, they, they see a face, you see two eyes, and it kind of looks like an open mouth, maybe like you're shocked or something or surprised. Um, and But that's because we have this 
proclivity to see faces even when they're not there because they are so important for us. So you see this in a lot of ways that people will see faces um, in objects or things when it's not a face because we have this proclivity. And so we have this way of understanding or perceiving faces in a way that we might not perceive other objects the same way. And so similarly, language is something that we seem to be equipped to learn, essentially all humans, to learn language in a particular way, and especially in a particular time window of our development, we can be even more sensitive to it to understand it more deeply. Um, and so because of that, it seems that we are equipped to, to learn language. So it's not like anything else that we learn. But coming back to this analogy between language and money, it's something that's socially constructed language. And so is money. It's socially constructed and only has value if others also give it value. The reason why the money in my pocket has value for me, or I know it has value, is because I know it has value for you. And we create a system that has some way of measuring it and other things or comparing it to other things. But um, it has a socially constructed value. Now, again, that doesn't mean it doesn't mean something. I talked about this last week in relationship to things like race and other things that automatically bring up feelings. You might think, well, no, but I think of money, I feel something. It's not like it because of other people or anything like that, but that's how we internalize things over time. It just feels intrinsic, the value of money, but it's because of the social values and social construct. The other thing I like about the analogy between language and, and money is that just how money can change value um, in a variety of ways, a certain currency, let's say, can change value. So I think the dollar and the euro are much closer now to in value as they were before. Uh, individual words can change value over time as well, whether they are more positive or negative, whether they mean different things, those things will change over time. And as they change, it becomes more automatic and it can be hard to remember the previous connotation of it before that. So for example, uh, Google, which is of course this huge company, or I think the company's name is Alphabet, but Google is part of that company, is such a common com uh, you know, uh, word that we use in talking about the company and also in using the search engine, you know, that we say just Google it is, is a noun, a verb now, I mean, to, to say that. Uh, but Google is a one with a uh, hundred zeros after it, it's a number. And I remember when I was younger, I remember actually um, a very, very good friend, family friend, uh, Arash, taught me that. Arash told me that he was uh, maybe four years older than me. So when I was young, he said, oh, yeah, you know, what's one with 100 zeros? It's a Google. That's the number, a Google. And I was like, oh, cool. And back then, that's always what it meant. But it actually uh, wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I almost forgot that that was the number after so many years of Google being this company. And when you hear Google, you don't think of this number, you think of the big company and other things and however it might relate to your life. And so that original meaning of the word of a, a certain number kind of loses its meaning to you or that word doesn't have that meaning anymore. So just like uh, a currency can change value or a currency can become obsolete. We're seeing that with things like cryptocurrency, which also again will show us this sense that uh, currencies are a social construct. They go up and down based on how other people value them and a host of other factors. But really, what's what's the intrinsic value of it? Really, nothing. Um, or it's hard hard to say it has some kind of intrinsic value in and of itself. But that's the same thing we see with language. That it's we can't say it. A word like book. I'm looking at a book in front of me has value, but it's because we've made 
the word book and that sound of book and then also the spelling of it in that word to mean this thing that I'm holding in my hand that you can't see right now, but because of words, I can convey to you what I'm doing. Or you can imagine now this scene. I can tell you I'm holding this small black book in my hand, talking into the microphone, and now you have a visual image of what is going on as I'm speaking these words. So the words that I'm speaking help you understand what it might look like as I'm speaking these words. So we can see how powerful, incredible language is. Um, but sometimes we do it. I think this also points to how natural it is, the way that we speak, that we forget the things that are so natural. Uh, another aspect of language that can be interesting to look at how natural it is. So if you hear me say, how are you doing today? You probably in your mind heard that as these discrete things. How are you doing today? Like five different things. But really, if we were to just play the sound of what I said, it was maybe one or two sounds that could be broken up. And this is actually why if you hear a language you don't know and you hear someone speaking, you can't say how many words they spoke. But in English, let's say if that's a language you speak, it happens automatically that you hear the different words as separate distinct things, even though the sound that's being created won't be able to be separated in those different types of parts. I even experienced this in Farsi, which I can, to say I can read it would be uh, unfair. If you write um, Baba Abadad or something like that, I can probably read that pretty quickly in some other words. But other than that, I won't be able to read it much. And because I haven't read it much, sometimes if I hear people speak, or even if I'm speaking, I might not be able to tell you how many words something was because I don't know exactly how the words break up. If the, that part of the word is combined or if it's separated into two different words, it's not always clear to me. But if you're a native uh, Persian speaker who's spoken it all your life, you will automatically, it almost seem like, how could you not tell that that's three words or five words or whatever it might be? Uh, so we, we do see so many ways that language is so automatic for us um, again, that doesn't mean just because it feels that way it has to be, but it does point to more of these uh, issues that that language is something that as humans, we have evolved to be able to do, to be able to be good at. And it has so much value to allow us to communicate in ways that are quite incredible. Of course, it's limited at the same time. But coming back to this concept of words themselves, I think it is interesting to keep this in mind because sometimes people think, well, I used to say this word and so shouldn't it be okay for me to say it now? You can't tell me that uh, I can't say it now. But that's the same thing with currency. You can say, well, I used to use this Bitcoin to buy this and now they're saying, well, it's not as worth as much or maybe here it's not even accepted at all. And so the same thing happens with words that sometimes they change value or sometimes they become virtually unacceptable or they change meaning quite strongly. For example, the word you, Y-O-U, used to mean only a group of people, but now it's used almost exclusively to mean one person. I say, how are you doing? Now you can say it to a group and sometimes we do, like let's say I'm seeing a crowd of people, I say, how are you doing? And I mean to everyone. But usually when we say you in a sentence or we're talking conversationally, we think of one person, whereas before it was ex exclusively for more than one person. So, um, Seeing how words change value can remind us of the socially constructed aspect of it, while also recognizing that it seems like we have. Welcome back. So in this last segment, I actually wanted to share 
Um, a bit about kind of personal type of experience over the past few weeks that uh, I've been going through with my brother Parham. Now it's interesting that recently, I think what, was it two weeks ago, I have had him on the show and we we're talking about a variety of things, but a lot of the, the conversation was about creativity and some aspects of creativity and how we can promote it in, in schools and education, but also personally. And, and him and I have been in our own ways pursuing some creativity, but we've been doing a, a type of a mini creative venture, which is that we are are coming up with a, a performance for the Dolby Theater celebration on September 10th for the radio station. We're very excited about that. You know, I say performance, but I want to also say presentation in case it's not funny. Uh, and then it becomes like a, a tag team TED talk. And I can just pretend like we weren't even trying to be funny. It was just, it's a talk sharing some information, but we are trying to make it funny. So let's see how that goes. Uh, and, and so we've been working on this and, and, and trying to get it ready for that, that day. And I wanted to share this because it's a reminder of how it can be very easy to talk about a topic, but much harder to actually execute it. The, the old adage, it's easier said than done, is so true. That it's easy to say, oh, when you're creative, just do this and go into the discomfort and don't you know judge any of the ideas as they're coming out and keep just letting things flow and have a yes and attitude and all sorts of things that we talked about and I was talking about. And as we've gone through this, it has been fun, but also there's challenges that, that come up. And even I can say for myself that at times... Uh, he would share an idea like, oh, no, no, that's not that's not good. Or I don't like it. Or uh, I would quickly shoot it down. And um, that's, again, going exactly against what I myself was saying. And he was saying about how to, uh, you know, engender creativity and bring it about and make it more comfortable for people to share, have that psychological safety when you're creating ideas. Don't judge them, let them come out. So turning off the, the frontal lobes and the more critical thinking part, because you want to just let the ideas flow. And so when you say, no, no, that's not good before the idea has even been formed, even if it is your feeling or reaction, you might be throwing out the baby with the, the bathwater there, where there might be something good there, even in what's already shared, or it could be part of the ingredients that you bring into making whatever you're going to make. So it's like, before you even know what you're making, you don't want to get rid of ingredients because you might need that later on. So um, I've seen myself do exactly the opposite of some of the things I myself said. Uh, so it's kind of funny that we did that segment or that show about two weeks ago as we're in the midst of being creative together. And so I'm sure you can create a pretty funny video clip of things him and I both have said uh, on the air with things that we did that were the exact opposite when we've been working on this together. So it's been an interesting process. And as I said, humbling in that aspect of it or remembering that it's easy to talk about a topic, but much harder to do it, to execute those same principles. And that's something I always try to be mindful of when I talk about parenting, when I talk about uh, marriage or relationships, and whatever the topic might be, that it's very easy to say, oh yeah, just don't do this or don't do that or never do this or why would you ever do this? It's not right. It's easy to say those things, but life is tough and complicated and things are tough and complicated. And so it's good to keep that in mind. Um, what's also been interesting on this creative journey together is if I look at where we are today and we, we still have definitely some work to do until the event, which is coming up in less than two weeks, but we'll get there. We're, we're going to put in the work 
to make it ready for you all, and and we're excited to share it with you. Um, but if I look at where we are today, and the ideas we've we've come up with, and things that have come up, it, it's very difficult. It would have been impossible to predict it when we first started. And so, what I think has been good, and, and this is uh, talking about creativity and power. Home talked about this on the show that time constraints are not good for creativity. And it makes sense if you say, okay, I have to, let's say, write this essay and you have two hours. You don't have time to say, well, let me just see what comes to my mind and explore and take some risks and and maybe come up with something that's a little unconventional. It's like, no, you have to just do it what is like the closest to normal or good just to make sure you get the job done. You're not going to have a lot of room to, to kind of roam in that way. And so something I think we did a fairly good job as we started earlier, I'm sure we could have started even earlier, but... What you see is that by getting the ball rolling, you know, sometimes you think, well, it's just the the hours you meet together, let's say, to work on something. And of course, those are going to be critical and a certain magic happens when you're together. Let's say if it's two of you are in a group, that collective energy and that synergy of bringing things up and playing together has things come up. And I, I'm, maybe I'll touch on that too. Um, but what also happens, and I've seen it happen with him and I, about this, uh, you know, presentation <laughs> or performance is that because we've talked about it from a few weeks ago, both of us will have random things that'll pop into our head related to, oh, what if we did this? Or what if we did that? Or I just had this idea and we'll text each other or message each other and call each other to, to share the idea. But that was only possible because we already created this kind of like that you open the file in your brain and it's kind of working on it at a conscious and also an unconscious level. And Creativity, as we discussed that day, is, you know, things coming together in some kind of new combination. There's nothing new under the sun, but we combine things in a way that's never been done before or put a slight twist on it. And so you need to give yourself time to have those things happen. I'm sure we could have come up with something funny uh, the day before even and done okay. It could have been funny, but it wouldn't have allowed for this type of creativity to happen. So... Um, you know, there's some different schools of thought, or I don't say they're different, but they're, um, you need to have different aspects. One is sometimes, you know, working at something every day, which can feel forced, but you'll hear a lot of people that talk about creativity and creating art and creating, let's say, whether it's writing or any kind of art, that you want to put the time and the work in. Seth Godin in the practice, um, Pressfield in the, the war of art, that you want to make sure you're doing the work. And that is very important. Um, while you also want to make sure you're not making it feel too forced, you have to create something really good now. You need to have the room to play. And so that's something that I think it's been fun. The playing part, we sometimes just joke around and we try different things. Um, and, but that's what makes it, it fun. But also it's through the play that the good ideas come about, but also through our individual reflections and unconscious uh, you know, aha moments that we will share together. But again, you need to put the time. So sometimes there's this thing that people say is like, oh, I work well under pressure. And, uh, you know, so that's a, an excuse we use to procrastinate. And really what you're saying when you say I, I work well under pressure is like, well, when there's pressure, I have to get it done. And so I get it done. But it doesn't mean you're working better under pressure. It just means you actually got it done in that moment because you felt that fear that, oh, it's going to be due tomorrow. So it is an excuse we use. People love to say, oh, I work so much better under pressure, so I shouldn't work on it until the day before, the night before the essay is due. Something that I did all the time in college myself, don't recommend it to you at all. But definitely you would do better 
if you gave yourself more time. Don't fool yourself into thinking it's going to be better if I wait. That's just, again, an excuse we use to avoid, which is what we're all good at. And I think it's it's actually laughable. We all do it. The excuses we come up with, oh, you know what? I should sleep eight hours before I work on this thing. So I shouldn't do it today. I should start tomorrow. Or you know what? I don't do well. You know, isn't it good to have fun too? I have to go have fun and then I'm going to work on it. So we come up with reasons, but really what are we doing? We're avoiding something because it makes us anxious to face it. What if I don't create something good? And we felt that too. Me and my brother will even kind of be meeting and we won't even get started with talking about it. We'll dance around it. I've noticed uh, I've definitely been guilty of it too, because it's a little bit scary to say, well, let's see, what do we have here? Um, but of course, that's the reality. And you always want to try to face the reality of what you're you're going through, what you're, you're dealing with uh, to get to something better. You know, I mentioned sleep um, and, what's, and what's kind of interesting about sleep. Sleep is very important. Make sure you get enough sleep, kids and adults and elderly. Uh, we want to get enough sleep. It's very important to do so. But I've noticed this in myself, and I mentioned to Power Home yesterday, that when I don't get enough sleep, sleep, I've noticed that sometimes I'm a little more creative and it's not because the lack of sleep makes me better at something. What I think the lack of sleep does is it turns off my critical thinking a bit. So the same ingredients are there and they would be playing normally, but I might quiet them or not hear them because I'll be judging them or putting them away. But when I'm a little bit more, a little sleep deprived, I've noticed some of the ideas come out more easily at times. And so yesterday I was a bit sleep deprived and we actually came up, we both were a bit sleep deprived and came up with some pretty great ideas. And so again, I'm not saying you need to sleep less, but I think anything we can do in the creative part when you're trying to create before you curate and make it into something you're going to produce, let's say, or put out in that creating phase you want to turn off that critical mind as much as possible. Let whatever can connect and and recombine come out and then play with it and then see where what you get to. And then when you finally are going to present something uh, to the world or to the outside, then you have to curate and use the more judgmental side, critical thinking side. Even then you might even be harsh with love, harsh in the sense that you're trying to create something good. So you will um, be okay getting rid of pieces or being critical. No, this is actually not that good, or this sounded good in my head, but it's not translating into what I'm creating now and, and do all of those things. And I think it's been fun. We've been doing that too. Uh, and I, I've really, um, liked that. And actually let me give a, a piece of gratitude to power home actually, because I think he got us started and that was really important because I, I think I can be uh, an avoider when it comes to some of these things. I also trust myself and, and this is where it does get, you know, th- some things could be a gift and a curse not to pat myself on the back, but at times I can do well in those kind of situations where I let myself be in the moment. So it's not to say I work well under pressure in that same way I was saying, but allowing things to happen. But even still, I know that if I gave myself more time it would be better, but I trust myself in the moment and I like being in the moment because that's something I do every day with my clients is that I don't prepare that the session has to talk about this. You allow things to, to come up. There might be some themes from the previous session you keep in mind, but the more you're trying to force the session to become something, okay, we have to talk about this or have to make sure I do enough of this today, you actually usually don't have as good of a session as if you meet the client where they are 
and wherever they are, go from there and let that be your starting point and also let that guide you and you guide the ship essentially together, which could be quite beautiful. When you try to force it to go a certain way, you end up creating some some problems. Um, but going back to, to what I was saying, Parham really was the one that got some things going by having some material to get started with. And I don't know percentage-wise, and I don't think it's really important, of how much of that material is still in the final part. Um, some of it we completely got rid of. Some of it we changed. Some of it evolved into something else. A lot of it, though, uh, helped create the context to create the rest of what we have. And so getting started is so important. So maybe I'll, I'll end the show in in talking about this aspect of just getting things started. Because as I was saying, we always have this anxiety. We might say, oh, I want to write a song or I want to sing a song, but it's so scary. I actually had a friend that was talking about how she wanted to sing and sing well, but she was afraid to even sing and hear herself sing to know what if she's not good at it. And we can understand this, that it's, we don't want to lose the potential fantasy of it or the possibility. Possibility and daydream is something that acts like a drug, like, oh my God, what if I was singing so beautifully and people loved it and it was great and all this stuff. That does sound nice. But unfortunately, if we just uh, are afraid to face it, it can only stay as a daydream and we can never actually experience the possibility. So we have to go into that fear and that anxiety and say, you know what, let's see what I've got. It's tough. Again, easier said than done, as I'm saying it here on the air, but it's always harder to actually do, but then it might actually be a reality. And even if it's not a reality, at least you can close that and there's going to be some other reality that could be better than keeping a fantasy alive just to have that minor good feeling that it gives you. You know, those kinds of things, it's like a drug. It it changes your feelings fast, but those feelings don't last. It doesn't last for a long time. And so you need to just get started. Give it a go. See what you got. It's scary. And that's why when you try something new, I tried stand-up for the first time maybe more than a month ago now. I don't remember exactly when it was. It was scary. But what I told myself was I'm going to do it to have my first time doing it, not because I have to do it well or for it to be some kind of success or just doing it is the success, not how many laughs I get or you know how good of a set I have. And so I really, really encourage you to just do whatever it is that's on your mind, the thing that you think you might be good at or you'd like to try. And even when I say good at, maybe that I don't want that to be the goal, something you might even enjoy just for yourself. Art is healing first to the artist and then potentially gets shared and helps other people or helps them connect. But the primary part is that it has to be very real to you, and in that way it's going to help you first. And so I hope you'll take that, uh, that risk, and I'll say it in about two minutes when I end the show, to be kind and take risks. I hope you will take those risks in trying new things, in, in trying something new or different, trying something creative, if that's something that's on your mind, um, because it's a beautiful feeling. And I've really enjoyed having that uh, experience with Parham. Uh, I think it's brought us even closer. And and to be frank, we've had moments where even it's gotten tense or we've disagreed. And and I think even that's been good that we've worked through that and talked about it and and had those experiences. I think that's been been awesome. And I'm I'm excited and I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm nervous about September 10th, uh, I have to be honest, but I'm also excited about it as well. Hope to either see you there in person. Uh, if not, I'm sure we'll share a lot of things online uh, for those of you that can't make it to check it out. But 
uh, yeah, excited for that. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Ghazali here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Be kind and take risks. Have a wonderful night.